Hello, everyone. This is Mark C. Crowley, and you're listening to the Lead from the Heart podcast. Right before 2022 was ending, I went through the same annual review I've done for the past four years, where I asked myself, with all the time and energy I was putting into producing this podcast, was I making a significant enough difference to continue doing it? And in some respects, the answer should have been rather obvious as our audience kept growing in leaps and bounds and truly amazing people continue to be interested in joining us as guests. But it didn't prove to be as easy of a decision to make, largely because I was uncertain as to whether enough progress was happening in the world. The big question for me was whether workplace leadership was going forward or going backward and whether or not top CEOs had both the desire and the will to bring heart and care and true concern for employee well-being into their cultures in any meaningful way. What ultimately inspired me to keep going was a call I received from today's guest, the CEO of Barry Waymiller, a $3 billion manufacturing business that he built, not to mention the co-author of the bestseller, Everybody Matters, reached out to me with some powerful words of encouragement, praise even, for the work we were doing. But it was what Bob himself has been doing to influence CEOs to change their leadership practices that truly lifted my spirits. And I invited him on the spot to join us on the podcast so you can hear about it from him directly. Long story short, Bob Chapman is a CEO who earned an MBA in the days when employees were treated as inputs, numbers on a page, and resources to be exploited in the service of productivity and profits. And for 20 years, he ran his growing business accordingly. But in the late 1990s, he had an epiphany that organizations like his had a fiduciary duty to care about the welfare of their employees. And so much so that he's never laid off an employee since. He went on to create one of the most compelling, inclusive and caring workplaces in the world. So to frame this up in our language, Bob Chapman is the embodiment of the lead from the heart philosophy. And now that he's fully proved his methods drive sustainably better financial results, while doing too good in the world, he's made it his mission to convince his fellow CEOs to follow his example. As you listen in, you're gonna hear Bob say that he gave numerous speeches last year, and his audiences were largely senior leaders and chief executives who Bob has convinced me truly are interested in responding to the great resignation and improving their value proposition to employees. One big takeaway from my personal conversation with Bob is that many leaders really want to change their leadership practices. They simply don't know how or where to start. And with that insight, Bob reminded me of where we come in and the value of the podcast we're producing. It is an honor and a privilege to welcome Bob Chapman to the podcast. He's irrefutably the kind of CEO we all want to work for and the kind of CEO our world needs right now. Bob has lifted my spirits by sharing all the work that he's doing. And again, I asked him to join us to do the same thing for you. So glad to have you on the podcast, Bob Chapman. Pleasure to be here, Mark, and I look forward to this exchange in the hopes of blending our message together to make a more caring world. Well, I'm so looking forward to that. So let's get started. During the Great Recession and with your revenues plummeting, your organizations, your instinct as CEO wasn't to lay people off to cut costs. Instead, you implemented a shared sacrifice system where 401k matches were suspended, all employees were asked to take a one-month unpaid leave, and by my calculation, you as CEO took an over 90% pay cut. And the key and this is an important question because we're seeing so many layoffs happening right now, particularly in the technology sector, is that no employee lost their job with your intention. So now that a new recession appears to be on the horizon, why are there so few CEOs willing to follow your example? You know, I'm asked that question a lot, and it was really go back to the 0809 recession. And I would say to you that we thought 
going into, I'll call it the fall of 08 when the, really the crisis began, we thought our backlog was going to get us through that. And I walked into my board meeting in January. So it had been going on about four months and my board looked at me before I even sat down and said, don't you need to lay off people? I said, why do you say that? And I said, well, Bob, because everybody's letting people go. And I said, no, I think we're going to be okay. They said, well, aren't you being an optimist? And I said, I don't think so, because we had a pretty good backlog. We were financially solid, and I thought we could get through it. But about a month later, I was traveling in Italy, and I got an email from my team that said, our major customer just put on hold a huge project that was in our backlog. And I remember sitting in my hotel room in Italy saying, oh, my God, it's hit us. What are we going to do? But because, Mark, I had been preaching truly human leadership where everybody matters, the extraordinary power of caring for people, I've been preaching and preaching. It had shaped my sensitivity to my awareness of our stewardship of the lives we have the privilege of leading. And I said in my hotel room, because prior to that, I would have done what everybody else did. We're taught to do that. You know, if orders are down, you let people go. It's not personal. It's just what you do. You know, it's they teach us. It's just part of being a leader is you got to be able to address these issues in a powerful way and do what you got to do. So I sat there in my room thinking, if we measure success by the way we touch the lives of people and we let them go, we're going to hurt people. And it caused me to think in a way I'd never thought before, Mark. And I said, well, what would a caring family do if a family was faced with a crisis? They'd all take a little pain so that nobody had to take a lot of pain. So a thought surfaced from that environment, sitting in my hotel room in Italy, what if everybody took a month off without pay so that nobody would have to lose their job? So I structured an email back to my team in America. I said, guys, I'll be back in a few days. How could we do this so that we could address the crisis, but show that we care for our people? By the time I landed, our team had put together a program, and we announced that everybody was going to take a month off without pay so that we could get through this crisis without anybody losing their job. Having never done it before, never heard of doing anything like this, the amazing thing, Mark, was how people reacted. They were tremendously relieved, positive about it. And I think, well, they just gave up one twelfth of their salary, but I told them they could have it off when they wanted to have quality time with their family so they could pick their time, not when we told them. And I told them it would kept us from letting everybody go. So they did it to help their friends who worked with them because by them having that pain of one month, their friends that they worked with kept their job. The reaction was unbelievably positive. We got through it. And as the economy came out, we skyrocketed to another level of performance because we had validated our culture. We didn't lose the talent we had and we came out of it stronger than we went into it. So again, it was a revelation for me, but it was because of this guiding principle leadership where we measure success by the way we touch the lives of people. And if we do this, we are going to hurt people. So that got us through. And again, I always say the foundation of our doing that is a good business model, okay? We have a very diverse, well-designed business model that protects our people from a change in technology, a change in customer behavior, a change in economy. I always say if, if, if Ford builds a new F-150, they drive it into the worst terrain to see how it holds up, and then they make adjustments. Well, if you design a business model, drive it into the 0809 downturn and see how it holds up. General Electric fell apart and has never been the same since. Barry Waymo's share price went up 11%. We let nobody go. And we learned in that how to be better stewards of people's lives in a way that I had never been taught, never heard. It was a revelation that came to me when I thought about people, not as functions, but as somebody's precious child in my care. So it's a profound paradigm shift to put people on furloughs. It's also, by the way, and you didn't acknowledge this, but you took a substantial pay cut in order to accommodate the downturn. And we don't see CEOs do that. 
we don't see CEOs say, hey, I'm going to take some of the pain here. It's the rank and file that seem to get let go as soon as there appears to be trouble. And by the way, we're not in a recession right now. I mean, I know some of these technology companies, they realize that some of their businesses are about to struggle. But my big question is, why haven't more CEOs seen what you did, realized the great impact that it had on loyalty, on creativity and on commitment, on all the things that they want people to bring to work every day. So here it is now 13, 14 years later, and we're back to doing exactly what we know is wrong and you believe is fundamentally wrong. How come CEOs haven't figured this out? A, they're not taught, okay? They're never taught to care. They're taught to use people Again, the lens that I came out of my business education, entered Pricewaterhouse and entered Barry Wimmer, I saw people as a function for my success. Okay, that's what I was taught. I was a nice guy. We had a nice business, but I saw people as functions. And if I needed to make the numbers work, we adjusted we let people go. We shut people down, okay? Because it was just what you do. You know, it's just kind of accepted behavior, okay, within businesses and boards. This is what we do to make numbers work. Simon Sinek, who you know well, captures it in this beautiful statement. In the military, we honor those who give of themselves in service of others. And in business, we give bonuses to people who sacrifice others in service of themselves, okay? So the law of preservation you're either going to make the numbers work or we'll get somebody else, okay? And so they feel stuck in this game that is well-defined. It's all about the numbers. It's not about humans. It's about numbers, okay? Because remember, those CEOs are trying to keep their jobs and their boards are trying to please the shareholders and investors, okay? So there's this conflict constantly. I guarantee you in all these tech companies that have now announced these layoffs, the advice they're getting is, now is the time. Everybody from Amazon to Microsoft to Facebook are letting people go. Now's the time to do it because the market is seeing this as you're serious about profitability, not just organic growth. And so you need to do this right now. Take advantage of this window you have to get your cost down. Okay. And this doesn't really matter how it impacts people because it's all about numbers an investor analysis because an aggressive investor is going to come in and take over our company if we don't do it. So this window of it's acceptable right now for major prominent companies who are letting people go. Now's the time to do it. I can just hear the advice to the directors, okay, from the investment advisors who are interfacing. Here's what the market wants to see. They want to see that you're serious about profitability. And you could let these people go, and it's probably a good time to get rid of some of the deadwood, okay? Well, that's pitiful. Why do you need an economic recession to address performance issues? You should do that even when you're extremely profitable. It's the disease. It is the behavior that we reward because the investment committee says, good job. See, you got your cost down. Congratulations. I had read your book a long time ago, but I reread it to prepare for our conversation. And I had forgotten that you took over for your dad's firm when you were in your early 30s, very early 30s. And of course, as you just sort of mentioned that your instinct, you got an MBA from University of Michigan, if I remember correctly, and they taught you to treat workers as liabilities, numbers on a page. And again, people will let go if you needed to hit any kind of profit or financial goal. So I'm not sure this comes through in the book, Bob, but there must have been an epiphany moment. And maybe it's what you just described, but I'm wondering what was the change in thinking where you suddenly realized that your employees were human beings deserving of dignity and care. So what was the pivotal moment when your consciousness changed? So Mark, just for context for your listeners, I've been in this business since 1969, over 50 years, okay? The first 30 years of my experience in Barry Wimler, stepping into a family company I was struggling, building a family company, I had my mistakes, I survived my mistakes, I eventually built a company that was doing well. But it was always about organic growth, share price appreciation, financial stability. It was never about caring. 
Okay, I never heard the word caring in my journey in education, my experience in public accounting, my experience in business. So the revelation occurred about 15, 16 years ago at a wedding. I was at a wedding of my good friend and he's walking his daughter down the aisle and everybody was oohing and out how special this young lady was. And you look up at the altar and this young man waiting to be the, the husband of this young lady standing there and everybody thought he looked so good. And I've been blessed with this mind that tends to think differently. And all of a sudden at that wedding, watching people marvel at how lovely this young lady was, how proud this father was, I had this revelation. That's the only way I can describe it, a revelation at the wedding. All of a sudden I said, you know what? The 12,000 people that are part of our teams around the world are not engineers, accountants, hourly workers, labor, production workers, They are just like that young lady and young man. Somebody's precious child has been placed in my care. And the way I treat them is going to have a profound impact on their health and the quality of life they experience through marriage, through raising children in their communities. And it was a revelation. So, and the way I describe it now is the lens through which I saw people from my education, my experience in business, they were functions for my success. I needed these people for my success. That day at the wedding, when I saw these two precious young people and their parents coming together, that lens got completely switched 180 degrees and it changed everything for me. Because when you see people through a different lens, okay, it profoundly affects that sense of responsibility you have. Because again, nobody debates how precious that young lady and young man are in that family. But when we get them into business, they're functions for our success. So that is the moment in my speeches. You know, I gave 50 speeches around the world last year. That is the thing that everybody remembers, okay? That is the revelation I experienced about 20 years ago. Well, I'm glad you went to the wedding, and I wish more CEOs (laughs) would attend weddings and have the same insight that you had. What a shift that is. It reminds me of a conversation that I had with Toby Cosgrove, who is the former CEO of the Cleveland Clinic, but before being the CEO, he was probably the world's greatest heart surgeon. And he told me that he was 65 years old before he realized the importance of empathy as being a doctor, that he was such a technician, that he was so focused on the science and on the medicine and on the surgeries that he was performing, that once he was done, he didn't go back to check on the patients to see how they were doing. And, you know, I think this is probably how he was taught, just as you were. I hope there's more of this happening. Well, Mark, I, we've been on this journey 20 years. And a few years ago, I asked myself, I mean, we're dealing with people again, all over the world in leadership position. I say, why are we having to fix these adults And I realized our education system is the problem. We teach academic skills so you can get a job in accounting or engineering or production or law or marketing, but we don't teach people how to be leaders. You know, we have management classes, we get a management degree, and we get a job in management. So what do we try to do? We try to manage people. We don't teach people to be leaders. We don't teach people to care. We don't teach people the profound responsibility leaders have to the people they have the privilege of leading. We define success in our country as money, power, and position. And it doesn't matter how you get it as long as it's legal. And then you can write checks to charity and people say you're a wonderful human being because of whatever you give to. The greatest act of charity is not the checks we write. The greatest act of charity is how we treat the people we have the privilege of leading with respect and dignity. Tom Friedman, now about 18 months ago, maybe two years ago, wrote a phenomenal article that captures this better than my accounting words can capture it. He said, we don't have a poverty of money in this country. We have a poverty of dignity in this country. Mm -hmm. People don't feel valued. They feel used. You'll see humiliation, which will result in unrest like you've never seen before. So unfortunately, in the Industrial Revolution, when we began this vibrant economy from the Industrial Revolution that we attribute to the wealth of nations, to the wealth of our communities, we forgot one key thing. As we gather together in organizations, 
How do we make sure that people that we invite into our organization go home each night feeling valued? Nope. We use them for financial success, and then we celebrated those people who were financially successful because they wrote big checks to charity. So we began wrong, and now we have the most prosperous economy from a financial standpoint in our history, and we have the highest level of depression and anxiety and suicide we've ever had. Why? We have the most prosperous economy. People have money, but they don't have dignity. And so we need to rethink as we come together in organizations and every part of our society, what is our focus? Are we making sure that the people in our span of care go home at night feeling valued, that they contributed their gifts and they feel valued so they can be better husbands, wives, parents, community citizens. So that's why I say business could be the most powerful force for good in the world if we simply embrace the profound responsibility of leadership on the people whose lives are entrusted to us. So you gave a lot of speeches last year. I'm imagining that there are a lot of senior leaders hearing you say, this is how we've managed our company over the last 15, 20 years with great success. And I'm almost afraid to ask this question, but do they think you're a nut job? Do they think you're out of your mind? Or do they say, well, this guy owns the company so he can do what he wants, but I can't do that because I've got a board and I've got shareholders. And what's the response that you're getting? Are you feeling progress is being made? Are they turning on new lights inside of themselves? The answer is I'm feeling tremendous building momentum. First of all, in my 20-year journey, so last year was 54 speeches, but I've given hundreds around the world. And remember, for your audience, I don't just speak in business. I speak in healthcare, where we have a bigger crisis of leadership than we do even in business. I speak in education, where we have a crisis of leadership in the military and government. In every part of society... The issue we face is we don't have leaders. We have superintendents, we have bosses, we have principals, we have directors, but we don't have leaders. And so the sense of humiliation, the sense of loss in every part of our society, again, I've given three speeches in the medical industry this year on physician and nurse burnout. We have record numbers of people leaving the profession because they don't want to be a part of this manipulative system anymore okay it's, they're they're burning out okay in business we have people going home frustrated and it affects their spouse and affects their relationship with their kids it's a, what's amazing when we teach people how to be leaders which starts with empathetic listening around recognition and celebration how do you let people know they matter in thoughtful ways and then culture of service seizing the opportunity to serve others 90% of the feedback we get is how it affects their marriage and their relationship with their kids. So I will tell you in terms of CEOs, I know some of the nation's largest CEOs and they tell me I inspire them. Now their ability to change their game is limited. I mean, I, I can't name the person, but we were dealing with a major organization and the CEO said to me, I thought my job was to build the world's market leader in our sector. And I did that until I heard you speak, Bob, it never occurred to me to care for the 130,000 people that made that possible. This has given me a whole new purpose in life. So I would say to you, Mark, the encouraging thing, nobody at McKinsey, nobody at Harvard, Simon Sinek, nobody debates what I just said to you. Nobody in 20 years. If we walk outside and the moon's out, nobody's going to debate there's a moon, but that doesn't mean they know how to get there. They're not bad people. It's a bad system based on economic success, which we define as success. I think this is a powerful story that will say it all. There's a gentleman that heard me speak, flew out to Aspen to have dinner with me. And I sit down with him. I said, what are you really proud of in your life? And he said, well, I'm known for my $100 million gift to my alma mater. And I said, that's wonderful. But he said, what I'm proud of is my minority student athletic scholarship program. I said, that's great. How many students are you able to help every year? And he said, five or six. And I said, that's wonderful. I said, I'm curious. I have no idea. How many people work for your company in the world? He said, probably 100,000. So I said, you're telling me <laughs> here about the five or six minority students you can help, which is wonderful but you don't care about the 100,000 people that walk into your building every day and make it possible for you to do that. 
And this fine, faithful, really good Midwestern gentleman leaned back in his chair and he said, I never thought about that, Bob. So I would tell you, we have good people in a broken system. The system is around success is money, power, and position. And it doesn't matter how you get it as long as it's legal, because then you can write checks to charity and everybody will say, mm-hmm. you're a wonderful person. Yep. So you're saying, just to pin this down, though, that that's not anecdotal that one by one CEOs are hearing this and realizing there is a shift that needs to be made? I'm incredibly encouraged at the feedback I get. Now, they're not able to turn a switch and all of a sudden care. It's a journey. I mean, that major CEO said to me, how should I handle my board? And he was chairman and CEO. I said, very carefully, because they're not going to understand. They never talk about culture at board meetings. They talk about share price performance, compliance, strategy. And so I'd say to you, you got to give them time. you got to bring them along. Okay. So I'm incredibly encouraged by major CEOs that love our message. Okay. They don't know how to do it, but they love it. And so that's why we're working intensely with education I mean, seriously, 70 universities in the world use our Harvard case study. Our case has become a Harvard bestseller. These are future leaders, okay, that are now studying caring. So until we change education, we can't judge. The CEOs are playing the game they were given. They're playing the game they were dealt to deck to play, okay? It's about making numbers. It's not about caring for people. So until we change education, to say, look, leadership is the stewardship of the lives entrusted to you, and which requires a good business model and people who embrace that and create value and align with the expectation of the investors. So I'm incredibly encouraged, Mark, just even by talking to people like you that have such an audience as you do. Well, I needed some encouragement, so thank you. You know, I started this year thinking, is this going to happen? I mean, I'm seeing the layoffs. I'm seeing how companies are operating right now with not only are we laying people off, but we're saying, let's utilize this opportunity of layoffs to rid ourselves of underperforming people. They're not doing their jobs. They're not managing people. They're just using this broad brush. And it was discouraging to me. So I'm very happy to hear you say that. Mark, let me tell your audience something, because I was dealing with a major company, 150,000 people, and they had done a big layoff. And after my conversation, I said to you, shame on you. You knew your share price was not performing. The market is not going to sit back and reward you with an increase in your value. And I said, I learned a few years ago, there's something called business excellence staffing model. And you use natural attrition. People retire, people get other job opportunities. You use natural attrition to every time somebody for their own cause leaves the company, you challenge, is there a better way to do that so we don't need to replace that position? So through natural attrition, you end up with a organization that is never able to let 10% of the people go because you are always operating at a very efficient level. You're always working towards it. You should never be able to lay off people because you're never fat. Again, you don't have to lose weight if you never get overweight, right? So the point is you should stay healthy. So losing weight is never an option to your health. And so I'd say to you, shame on you that you use this to do what you should have done every day when you were doing well. You should, again, it's business excellence staffing model is design the ideal organization cost structure that your industry makes sense and then use natural attrition to move towards that. So you're constantly challenging yourself to be efficient so you never have to let people go to do that. Again, business excellence staffing was a big learning for me. Don't ever let your company get out of hand. Make sure you're constantly challenging. It's called continuous improvement. Are you doing things efficiently so that you are competitive in the marketplace and you don't have to do a layoff to get to the cost structure? Because that's what traditionally we did. So speaking of traditionally, think back to the first 20 years, 25 years you're running the business. And now today, what are the qualities, characteristics, traits, and talents that you look for when promoting somebody into a management role, starting at first management role they've ever had all the way up into senior roles in your organization? What's shifted? And what are those traits and talents? And how do you find them? Like, how do you identify them in people? 
Well, I would say to you two things. Do you have a vibrant business model? And then are you inviting people, like you just said, into that who can capture the value of that vision you have? I originally used executive recruiting firms to try and surface people, and I relied upon their recommendation. And I found very disappointed because, again, people who they bring to you, they give you references, but those are people that like them and not necessarily people that didn't perform. So I would say to you what I've learned is we now – put people through a series of tests when we are recruiting outside that tries to surface, do they have the qualities to rise to the level of the challenge to be good stewards? Because when we make a mistake on senior leaders, we might be disappointed that John or Mary didn't work out in some role, but we hurt the people that rely upon that person we hired. So we take incredibly seriously now And we put through a great deal of testing. We actually brought together our leadership outsourcing. So we have the Chapman Foundation, our Chapman Leadership Institute, where we help companies learn to do this. And we acquired Leadership Alliance that did testing to surface the qualities you're looking for in leaders. So, And we found we have dramatically improved our success by running people through this test and then giving them a case study relevant to their role and see how they would handle it compared to others. Mm. So the bar that we now have now, we're three and a half, 3.7 billion now compared to 20 million when I started. So our ability to attract much stronger candidates today, but I'm telling you something right now, we've got the great resignation. You can't believe Mark, the talent that is now joining our company because of what they hear about our culture. Last year in our consulting company, we hired 450 talented engineers in our consulting company in a tight market for talent. And the number one reason was our culture, okay? Again, in terms of leaders, we have raised the bar dramatically because when we make a mistake on a leader, we hurt a lot of people. And it's a lot easier to address a performance issue on somebody who was there before you than somebody you hired. Because when you hire somebody, your own credibility is at stake. Why did you hire that individual that didn't work out? So what we have done is raise the bar dramatically on testing, case studies, everything we can do to reduce the risk of error because we hurt people when we make a bad decision on a leader. Mm. Dig in a little bit more. Can you tell me about the testing? What does that mean? And also, when you are giving them a case study, is it a scenario that you're asking them to respond to in an interview process? Or are you giving them a really high hurdle and saying, here's what we want you to do and demonstrate to us what your strategy would be? Like, is it homework, I guess is what I'm asking? Or is it extemporaneous in the moment that you're interviewing them that you're saying, okay, here's a scenario. Tell us how you'd manage this. How does this work? So first of all, we're looking for people who seem to have the qualities of leadership that you know we have a sense of, but that just gets you in the gate. Then you've got to do a leadership alliance test, which is a group of, you know we have over 20 people with PhDs in psychology who've developed this testing criteria that helps us isolate, does this person have the right critical thinking, the right human skills? You know, I know they make a good impression, but under that good impression, are the right attributes there to become a leader, okay? So we've had a number of people that, boy, that person seems really good. We're really excited. And then they get feedback from this testing that they don't really possess the skills necessary to become that leader, which helps us. Then if they get through that gate, then they have to do a case study, which is relevant to the where they're going. So it's usually something we have experienced before. Here's a situation And we tell them in advance, and then they present to a group of people how they would handle that situation. And that's another level of discernment because some people have tested well, but then they get and they don't think critically through the case. So it's not some hypothetical case. It's actually a situation we have been in, and we ask them, here's the facts. How would you handle it? So again, our success rate on finding leaders, attracting leaders has been dramatically improved. Our air in key leaders is down dramatically. We take very seriously recruiting and inviting people into an organization because they're going to impact the lives of other people. And we want them to have the skills. And so it's been a powerful new level. But again, 
the talent we're now recruiting and attracting because of our culture. You say, how do you justify caring? People say that to me all the time. Mark. How do you justify the cost of caring for your people? I said, how do you justify not caring? Mm-hmm. Okay, I don't need to justify caring for people. you got to justify to me because we know it's leading to anxiety, depression, suicide, and everything else. So, again, as leaders of companies, we got to take our game up a level and say, we need a good business model and we need leaders to embrace this and treat people with respect and dignity. And then people will give you gifts, Mark, they had no idea they had. Because I always say the bad news about COVID is it was highly contagious. The good news about caring, it's even more contagious than COVID. Okay. And that's the good news. So I remember it's been a long time, but at least 25 years ago, I heard Brian Tracy or read him say that the single greatest mistake a manager can make is a bad hire. And I just remember thinking what a spot on observation that is because unravel a bad leader, a bad manager. And by the time you've done it, the harm has already been done. So I love the discipline and I'm glad that I asked about the testing and about your case studies, which I think is a wonderful way of raising the bar. Let me mention one thing because you said it several times. A person in your position, I would love to challenge you to never use the word manager again because the words we use in business affect the way we behave. We have bosses, supervisors, and managers. Nobody wants a boss, nobody wants to be supervised, and nobody wants to be managed. So why do we call people managers? I always say we need leaders, coaches, and mentors. So part of it, Mark, and you have the influence, one of the top podcasts, Brilliant Mind, great book, One of the ways we lead from the heart is changing the language. We need a more human language, okay, that results in human behavior. So simple little things, Mark. We talk about people that work on the floor in our production area. While I walk on our production area, I don't see people working on the floor. I see people standing up and working hard and sharing their gifts with us. And we walk out of our nice offices with nice windows and we walk into our plant with no windows because people in the plant don't need sunlight. Mm -hmm. So we have these ways we discriminate people in words that lead to bad behavior. So if people of your influence stopped using the word manager and said, we have leaders, we have mentors, we have coaches, language affects behavior. And if I never heard the word manager again in my life, I'd be thrilled. Well, you're attributing greater power and influence to me than I think I actually possess. However, I will say that this audience knows that at least almost 10 years ago, I wrote an article saying that I believe that we should be changing that language and calling people who have traditionally managed, quote unquote, into coaches. And I got a lot of pushback on that saying, well, coaches don't do the budgets. And I'm like, yeah, why not? Like, that's your assumption, but why not? But you raise a great question. So what do you call people who supervise other people in your organization? Maybe we can learn from you. Leaders. I hate the word manager. We call them leaders. Okay. Mm -hmm. And we don't call our people employees. We call them team members. Okay. Employees is a legal description. We employ them. Okay. So tiny sidebar. I once had the privilege of speaking at the weapons school at the Air Force where we teach the Top Gun pilots. And I said, how do you teach young men and women at this educational experience to create these pilots how to kill other people? And say, we don't teach them. We teach them how to take out targets that made bad decisions. They dehumanize killing people. We call them targets that made bad decisions. In business, you can lay off employees, workers, union members, because they're not somebody's precious child. That's why when you see people, Mark, as somebody's precious child in your care and you treat them like you would like your child treated or you want to be treated, it changes everything. Otherwise, you know, if they're just employees or direct reports or a labor union, we can do that to them. So changing the language is part of changing the way we see the people we have the privilege of leading. And that to me is what I want your audience to hear. When you see those people, not as functions for your success, but as somebody's precious child that's been placed in your care for 40 hours a week, it changes the way you treat them. Okay, wonderful. I'm really glad you did that. Now I want to ask you something related to sustaining 
the culture that you have. So one of the things that I used to tell managers, remember that word, they were called managers at that time. So I'm getting off here. But those leaders who work for me, I used to tell them that if they had low turnover on their team, that that was a direct reflection of how they led. And if they had high turnover, it was absolutely the same. It's a reflection of how you're leading, that you're not attracting and being able to sustain relationships with people that people don't want to continue to follow you. And so I've always believed, Bob, that if organizations maintain some kind of pulse on how people felt about the leader that they were working for, then you could do additional coaching and focusing on the people who weren't leading effectively, who weren't caring and weren't supporting and weed them out if they can't get on board, but making sure that they're not doing any harm. So I'm almost 100% certain that you have some kinds of metrics involved, not what many organizations, you know, the annual engagement survey that does nothing and has no impact. What do you do? I really appreciate you asking that because when we created the Guiding Principle Leadership, which is our constitution for our culture 20 years ago, Ron Spencer, our chief people officer, challenged me, said, Bob, a lot of companies have good expressions on the wall. They just don't live it, like Enron. And I said, okay, Rhonda, I'm not going to put them on the wall. I'm going to put them in people's heads and hearts. And I flew out, and I started having listening sessions. And I started sharing my message directly with, you know, it could be new team members. It could be people from the office and plant together. It could be very all kind. And I had them all over the world. I learned so much about what was dysfunctional. It never occurred to me that if you worked in the office, you could pick up a phone and call home and see how your sick child is doing. But if you worked in our plant, you had to wait for a break and then you had to get coins to go to the payphone to call home. Little things like that never occurred to me the way we differentiate whether you walk into the office or whether you walk into the plant, okay? And so by listening to these people, we found issues that we didn't even know we had. It wasn't doing a survey. It was going out and people feeling they could tell me how they felt. I remember one gentleman said to me, Mr. Chapman, he said, I've worked here for 30 years and I walked in every day and people told me what to do, never asked me what I thought, I got 10 things right, and I never heard a word and got one thing wrong, got my ass chewed out. And I knew when I go home at night, I didn't feel very good about myself, so I wasn't nice to my wife. Okay, I mean, this was brilliant. He said, since you've taken over the company and I feel valued and I feel heard, I'm nicer to my wife and my marriage has gotten dramatically better. You can't get that in a survey, okay? You can't do some data collection. Can you imagine, Mark, doing a survey of your marriage I just had this morning, before your call, had a hundred people around the world on a call of all new team members who had just joined us, a hundred people around the world. And I shared with them our vision, what it's about. I answered their questions and the stories were incredible. And two people, a young lady who could be our daughter or a gentleman who could be our brother, told the stories of what it felt like to be laid off in their career. This young lady, as well as this gentleman, and it was powerful. And so I would say to you that we try to identify inconsistencies, not only of leaders, but of practices that discriminate, that degrade people, because it's not just our words sometimes, it's our actions that we don't even think about that degrade people. So I would say to you, I'm constantly out listening to people, saying this is what we believe in, what is inconsistent, okay? And how can we be better? And it's amazing what people will tell you, that a survey would never surface. So dig into that. The people that you just described that were laid off in their career, what were some of the words that they used to describe that experience? This young lady talked about being told to put her stuff in a box and that it was her last day. And she walked home to her parents, sat in the backyard and was just devastated that for the second time in her young career, in each year, her first two years of career, she'd been laid off in both organizations. And she was talking to her parents about it. And it turns out her neighbor happened to work for us and hear it and told her about our culture. And she just said what it means to her, this, I guess she's in her early 20s, just said what it means to her and her parents. Her parents are thrilled 
that their daughter is now in a place where she feels safe. And you couldn't put better words in her mouth when she told 100 people, do you know what it feels like? My first two jobs, I got laid off in the first year and I found this company and I feel safe now and valued and my parents are thrilled. That's what we want for everybody. And this gentleman, he looked like he's probably in his upper 50s, you know, and he'd been laid off in several jobs and he'd heard about us, he'd studied us and when he saw an opportunity to develop, he couldn't believe it. His words were unbelievable in terms of what it feels like to feel safe now in an environment where he can share his gifts, make sure that he uses gifts to help his team members so that he has a future. And I, I mean, these stories would rip your heart out, Mark. I mean, we welcome people in the organization, then we shove them out of the organization when we don't need them. Okay. The message of welcoming compared to saying goodbye is dramatically different. Amen. So I asked you about hopefulness and you made it very clear that you are very, very hopeful. But do you have any reason to believe that many more CEOs are truly seeking a more enlightened way of leading their employees? Well, I guess a signal, Mark, that's encouraging our Barry Wimler Leadership Institute, where we share our blessings and help companies that believe what we believe join us. Sarah Hanna, who runs that with Mark Wyatt, told me the other day, the number of daily inquiries they're getting. I mean, Airbus in France just contacted us because they want us to talk to them about this leadership culture. And she says, almost every day we're getting another inquiry because the great resignation, the loss of talent is starting to say, oh, we got to do something about it because we're losing. Well, that's the wrong reason to do it. You should do it even if you're not losing people. Okay. So I would say to you, most people are doing it for the wrong reason. Again, never in 20 years have I had a CEO say to me, oh, Bob, you're in Disneyland. This is not real. I've had them say, some from the largest company, Bob, you're an inspiration for me. So I would say to you just the opposite. I'm incredibly encouraged, but you can't change this overnight. Boards of directors have got to get on board with this. And the key is while we're trying to fix in the emergency room, the adults, we've got to shape the future leaders. So our education systems got to start teaching people how to care for the people they lead, not use people for financial success, but care for people for human success. Wonderful. Listeners, the heartbeat round with Bob Chapman comes up next, not to mention his really wonderful final piece of leadership guidance. But right before, I'd like to briefly ring the plug bell as the growth of our audience is the key metric we use to validate our success. I ask you to please think of just one person whom you think would really enjoy our show and immediately introduce us to them. Just one person. And if you haven't already done so or need a book for your entire team to read together, please order a copy of my book, Lead from the Heart. Amazon still has it priced at a great discount and normally delivers it in just a few days. And one more thing, I speak all around the world. And if you have an event scheduled this year, I would love to come and be one of your presenters. So please reach out to me directly if you'd like to discuss. And now back to the show. So, Bob, we have a tradition on the podcast where we ask all of our guests a few quick answer questions, and we hope that they'll give us an even greater insight into, in this case, your personal influences, life philosophy. And we cleverly call it the heartbeat round because we want you to answer each of them in a heartbeat. Are you up for this? I'm giving my best, Mark. All right, here we go. The trait you admire most in other people? Compassion, humility. Piece of advice you'd give your younger self. State what you want your life to mean. What do you want people to say about your life when you leave this earth and then make it true? Your greatest fear. That the blessing that I've been given in terms of truly human leadership would die with me. The world's greatest problem needing fixing. We don't know how to listen to understand. We currently listen to debate and judge. Magazine or newspaper you never miss reading. All of them. (laughs) You know, I just add that I was taught by a lady that was a Wall Street Journal writer. She said, Mr. Chapman, we're taught that what bleeds reads. I think it's hard to have hope for the world when the media focuses on what's broken. So I don't miss reading the brokenness of the world. I like focusing on the goodness. It gives me hope. What should be required reading for every human alive? I would say the book that Ken Blanchard wrote, 
the one minute manager was was a book that everybody it's simple and it's powerful and spencer johnson is co-author a prediction about the future you're pretty certain will come true that we're going to see a transformation in education to add to academic skills human skills of caring to create future leaders a cultural value every organization should have caring your number one rule for wellness a sense of purpose a calling the quality that derails the most leadership careers a me focus rather than a we focus your synonym for the word heart i would say caring something you think everyone should do at least once in their life have a sense that you're on a journey with profound purpose in service of others and finally one subject you think all leaders would be wise to bone up on listening Great. <laughs> Very thoughtful answers. Thank you for going through this with me. So before you go, final question. We have CEOs, the ERSATS managers, <laughs> coaches, leaders, senior leaders, HR administrators from all over the world listening in. So what advice or piece of wisdom would you like for them to most remember from this conversation? that leadership is a privilege it is not a job and leadership is about giving those people in your span of care a grounded sense of hope for the future so that in the time you have them in their care you'll give them a chance to know that who they are and what they do matters so that when they return home they can be better husbands and wives, parents and citizens. And that I want to understand that the issue we face today of the highest level of anxiety and depression is because we were taught to use people for organizational success, not to care for people for human success. So CEOs need to change that lens through which they see the people in their organization and they need to focus on making sure they have a business model gives them a grounded sense of hope in the future so they can raise a family, buy a home, have kids with the confidence that they place in you. So leadership is a privilege. It is not a job. Bob Chapman, it's been an honor to have you on the podcast and you're doing God's work, as they say. So congratulations. Keep going. And on behalf of my audience, Thank you so very much. It's just been a great experience for all of us. Thank you for helping me share this message with your thoughtful questions and, and the audience that you've earned. And I hope that we've touched a few heads and hearts. <laughs> okay, thank you. Thank you, sir. Happy New Year to you. Okay, let's make it a happy New Year by making the world a better place, okay? Amen to that. As we say goodbye, we've just booked several more truly extraordinary guests, and I look forward to sharing their episodes with you in the coming weeks and months. And I, of course, want to acknowledge my wonderful team, Mr. Ken Boynton, Carrie Finnessy, Anna Boynton, Randy Yant, and my producer and sound engineer, Eric Oz. And until the next time, I close things out, you know where I'm going, with two consistent reminders. When you lead from the heart, your people will follow and love your people. This is Mark C. Crowley thanking you for listening and signing off for now. Mm -hmm.